0: Indeed, where is thy sting, O death? That which stands as the great enemy of our souls has been defeated, the sting has been removed, and we as the people of God await that redemptive moment when all the the created humanity will stand and receive our King and the, the the new heavens and the new earth will await us. And, Father, we are a people who have been prepared for that great day, the day of the Lord, by the finished, completed, total work of Jesus Christ in our stead. We are a people who have not contributed. We have not saved ourselves. We are a people who have received a gift, the gift of eternal life, With the hand of faith, we have laid hold to the glorious King, the triumphant Savior, the the sin-bearing sacrifice. We have laid hold of Him with the weak hand of faith. And as such, we have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Oh God, might we see all of life through that light uh, that, uh, that enlightens the kingdom of God. Might all of our struggles, all of our challenges, all of our decisions, all of our priorities be shined upon by that light. Might we be able to make choices in view of what has happened to us and what awaits us. Oh God, might today we cut one eye towards heaven and not forget that this three score and ten is not all there is. There is an eternity. This life is that which prepares us for that. And so, O God, we begin our practice this morning. We want our worship to be pleasing in your sight. And might you find, might you take pleasure in a group of people who have their own sinful stories to tell, and yet... Because of the salvation you have wrought in Christ, we stand forgiven. A people bought by the purchase of blood. And now we come to worship the God who saved us in Christ. Might this worship please you, O God. Might all that goes on here please you. And might it change us so that tomorrow we might not forget who we are and whose we are. We make our prayer, of course, in the name of our risen Savior, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the 34th Psalm. Rather unusual Easter morning text, but my text nonetheless. I've even memorized my text this morning. But you can follow as I quote it. It's in Psalm 34, verse 8, verse 8 simply says this O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the man who trusts in him the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god that endures forever Not too long ago, I was uh, filling the pulpit of a friend of mine, and uh, after I had completed my sermon, a woman came up to me to tell me how much she had enjoyed my sermon, which I'm always glad to know, and uh, she said something like this. She said, um, she said, uh, I I really enjoyed your sermon, Dr. Young, because, you know, um, our preacher, um he only talks to our heads and you spoke to our hearts well i was uh, delighted to know that um that she had been ministered to by what i said and i was also a, a bit chagrined that she had taken a shot at her pastor um uh, but i was reminded ladies and gentlemen that um that i'm i'm just as guilty of doing something like that uh, as anybody that is being a bit too heady and uh, thus missing the heart not not to say that those two are mutually exclusive that is that you uh, that if you do one you can't do the other but I, I think it's safe to say or true to say that if i ever err on one end of the spectrum most frequently it's uh, it's the heady end of the spectrum uh where i do most of my mistakes um I, i've even been guilty of uh, of doing that on easter I uh, have uh, waxed eloquent. Don't you love that phrase, waxed eloquent? <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know how that came about, wax. I mean, you wax a car or you, you wax your upper lip. But, you, you know, wh- how, how did that happen, that wax? But anyway, you know what it means. Uh, I don't know how eloquently it was, but I waxed. And um, I, I pointed out the irrefutable proofs. Of the resurrection, and I put the uh, the skeptics to flight, which is something that um, is needed. That must be done. The, the, the Christian faith is rooted in an historically verifiable empty tomb. That's uh, that's what we call. It's a part of the historicity uh, of Christianity. Proving the resurrection beyond all reasonable doubt can be and must be done, particularly in in the age in which we find ourselves. Uh, that is so um, so full of postmodern skepticism. We, we do have to stand inside the marketplace of ideas and and. Um, and, and demonstrate that ours can withstand any kind of uh, um, withering assault. Um, but you got to remember this, ladies and gentlemen, that often, and, and really I think more often than not, the path to the heart is through the head. Um, not, Not perhaps for all of you, but certainly for many of you. Um, Christianity, unlike the other world religions, hear me, unlike the other world religions, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity welcomes investigation. It invites um, scrutiny and analysis. To become a Christian, you need not commit some kind of intellectual suicide. But... I appreciate the role of the head, but this lady's comment really kind of got me. That is, it really kind of um, reminded me that the goal is not so much the head, but indeed the heart. Guys, um, make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is after the hearts of men. Now, he normally does that by going through the head. Or if he gets the heart, the head usually comes along with it. Or he gathers up both of them and starts in the head. I don't know how you want to say that. But whereas, it is important that Christianity demonstrate to a culture that more... Um, frequently now is attacking it, it's important to demonstrate that there is indeed intellectual substance uh, to this thing we call our Christian faith. But we must never forget that that's just the path on the way to the heart. We can never be satisfied. We can never uh, stop until truth has overtaken the heart. And, and that has always got to be our goal. Now, having said that, I thought what I would do um, this Easter Sunday morning is, is make a very concerted effort... Um, to try and be as unheady as I can possibly be. Uh, you know, striving to be simple. To, to, to be as simple as possible. Um, so that today, if I err, I want to err on the other end of the spectrum. You know, I normally err on this one, and so as, a, as an effort in striking a bit of balance, I'm going to try to err on the other end. Um, I'm going to try to be as unheady... And um, simple as, as, uh, as I know how to be. So to do that, I have gathered three stories. And, and one of my stories even has props. <laughs> but um, th- th- these three stories, aren't, none of them are exactly what you'd call barn burners. They're just simple. Simple stories. And for today, that's my goal is to be um, simple. Um, I'm not trying to reason with you this morning. Um, That is something that can be done, and it must be done. And when Christianity gets ready to do it, it does it outstandingly. But I'm not trying to reason with you this morning. I'm trying to thrill you. And if not thrill you, at least I'm trying to remind you. What I want to do is something like our text did. Did you, did you notice it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, the Bible sometimes asks us to enjoy things before we see them. You notice the order taste. And see, the, 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 the idea is that the enjoyment, the, the, the taste comes before the seeing. The enjoyment comes before the experiencing. The, uh, the enjoyment comes before the seeing. And that's what I want to try to do with you today. I want to appeal to you like Psalm 34 verse 8 is appealing to you. By the way, um, some of you are going to recognize the kind of appeal that I'm making—I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. It's a particular brand of appeal, and in uh, um, in the uh, circles of uh, of uh, religious debate, it's a very controversially controversial controversial appeal. But I want to appeal to you this morning, kind of like Psalm 34:8 did. I want you to taste and see. That the Lord is good. I'm not here to reason with you. I'm here to thrill you. As best I can. If I can't do that, I at least want to comfort you. Remind you of certain things. Now to do that, I've, I've gathered, as I said, three stories. Pretty simple stories. Nothing, uh, nothing earth-shattering and moving about these stories. that don't get your hopes up. But uh, just three stories that I hope will allow me to um, do what uh, my intended purpose is. Here's my first story. Have any of you ever read the story um, that Philip Yancey, you know that name. He's written several books that many of us enjoy. Uh, the, the story that Philip Yancey tells about the, the only kitten that he ever owned in his life. You ever read that? Well, um, he, he was about five or six years old when he got his first kitten, and um, he named his kitten Boots. Boots was a totally black kitten that had, uh, at the end of each leg, on his little paws, little white uh, paws. It was almost as if somebody had taken a, um, taken the cat and dipped him into a shallow dish of white paint. And so they called him Boots. Boots um, lived on the screened-in back porch of his house. He was raised in South Georgia and uh, he lived on the back porch and his mother had made uh boots a pillow to sleep on and uh, the pillow was stuffed with cedar shakes but his mother was also determined that boots uh, had to learn how to uh cope with the uh the 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 uh, the uh challenges of the greater outdoors and so a day was chosen for boots to be introduced to the adventures of living outside it was Easter Sunday, that was chosen. Big day finally arrived, and and so uh, after church they had come home, enjoyed a meal together, and so they took Boots outside to uh, to enjoy some of the wonders of the great outdoors. And so they watched uh, as little Boots sniffed at her first blade of grass, and. How she batted at her at, at the, the first jonquil and, 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 and then she um, stalked this, um, this butterfly and she leaped high in the air trying to catch it and missed it. and The whole family was just really wonderfully entertained um, until, <laughs> until the next door neighbor kids came over uh, for the Easter egg hunt. And the next door neighbor kids uh, brought uh, their family pet with them that happened to be a dog uh, by the name of Pugs. Now, Pugs was a Boston Terrier uh, who immediately upon entering the backyard of the um, Yanceys uh, spied Boots and took a beeline after the cat and all the kids saw what was happening and began to scream and and run after the, the dog. But before they could get there, Pugs had had already gotten to boots had had boots in her mouth in his mouth and shrinking her like a rag, and all the kids were standing around and screaming and yelling and <laughs> and um and uh um all they could see was little tufts of cat hair you know kind of being spit out and finally when 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 Pugs had done his worst, he uh, dropped the cat onto the grass, The little limp body fell into the grass, and um, he kind of trotted off rather triumphantly. Well, Yancey said, "Um, I couldn't have told you exactly what I was uh, dealing with that day, but it was on that Easter Sunday. That he learned the meaning of the very ugly word irreversible he said all afternoon i prayed for a miracle you know how, how can this be it can't be true i mean surely boots would come back i mean what about that story that my study school teacher told me this morning about jesus or maybe Maybe the whole morning could somehow be erased, or or maybe at least rewound and played over again, minus that horrid scene there with the cat in the mouth of the dog. Uh, or or maybe we could keep boots on the screen and back porch forever, or or maybe we could talk our neighbors into building a, a fence around pugs. Or uh, and a thousand and one schemes ran through his mind as he as he uh, considered this event. He said, finally, after a few days, reality won over, and he accepted the fact that uh, Boots was dead, irreversibly dead. He said, from then on, Easter, in his childhood, was stained with the memory of death, as opposed to... Resurrection. You know, listen, gentlemen, it's that word that, that sticks in our throats, isn't it? Irreversible. It, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's the irreversibility of death that makes it so sad, so scary, so ugly. You know, m- m- most things, most things we can fix. But we can't fix death. You know, while Susie and I were in Hungary last month, um, we had two things stolen from us. Now, we were lied to and cheated and gouged and taken advantage of numerous times. Um, But we only had two things stolen from us. Our train tickets were stolen and uh, a piece of Heron china. Now, granted, we, we made it far too easy on the thieves, but, you know, we're learning. But, um, but my point is this, ladies and gentlemen. Later in the trip, both of those losses were corrected. It, it took a little money, but the loss was not irreversible. And I am here to tell you that neither is death. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I understand some of the horrible emotions that we experience concerning death. But later, later we're all going to find out that death gets reversed. You know that famous line in, in um, the third volume of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? When Sam Gamgee asks Gandalf, Are all bad things going to come untrue? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, all bad things are going to come untrue. All of those same emotions that are experienced by the early Christian church when they finally realize that jesus christ had risen from the dead you are going to have those emotions all of that gloom and all of that sorrow is going to be replaced and i say to you my friends that that confidence is at the center it is at the very heart of the christian message Now, okay, Dr. Young, on what do you base such a confidence? We base our confidence on an event. An event that we are confident is provable beyond any reasonable doubt. And because, ladies and gentlemen, it's so provable, every four or five years or so, somebody else is writing a new book trying to disprove the proof. Because because non-Christianity is, is uh, the enemy of Christianity is desperate to disprove the resurrection. And they have sought to do it for the last 2,000 years. And we stand in the midst of that debate and we (laughs) say we can, beyond all reasonable doubt, prove to you. That someone has come back from the dead. And so I say, my friend, the ache that is in your soul, it won't be there forever. The, uh, the sense of loss, it will vanish. It will vanish on the heels of resurrection. Gloom will become joy. And bitter will become sweet. We only taste it now. We'll see it later. That's my first story. Let me tell you my second story. It's a a story about a tour group that was taking a tour... Um, through an art gallery, and as they toured to the art gallery, they came upon a painting that had uh, a title underneath the uh, on the frame, and the title of this painting was "Checkmate." And the painting was a was a picture of Peter and Satan sitting at a chessboard, and um, the tour guide informed the group that um, this was depicting the scene after Peter had uh, denied Christ. And in essence, Satan was saying to Peter, checkmate. And so the the tour group moves on, but one of the members of the group stays behind. Now understand this story, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to understand just just a tiny bit about chess. I I didn't play a lot of chess, but in my childhood, I played a little, and I know how uh, all the little pieces are allowed to move and all that business. And, and, And I know this much, that the goal of chess is to corner your opponent's king. Now, when you put your opponent's king in jeopardy, you have to notify your opponent by saying, check. But when you have cornered the king, your opponent's king, in such a way that he has no more moves, that any move that he would make would put him in line to be captured by one of your pieces, that is called checkmate. When there are no more moves to make, that is checkmate. Well, the title of this painting was checkmate. About two and a half hours later, the, uh, the tour guide comes back, and there's that man still standing there, and he says, Sir, we're going to have to be going. And at that moment, the, the man who's looking at the painting shouts, One more move! <laughs> there's one more move! Turns out that this man was a chess master and that he had been examining this this painting. And he found and saw one more move that Peter had that apparently the artist had not seen. Now, for the Christian, ladies and gentlemen, when you're driving out of the cemetery... And you're leaving behind someone you love dearly. Remember this. There's one more move. That six-foot hole in the ground is not all there is. There's one more move. Death is not the final word, ladies and gentlemen. Death has got quite a sting to it. Yes, indeed. But the king who can never be cornered has removed that sting and now for us, there's one more move. We only get to taste it now. We'll see it later. Here's my final story. It's um, apparently a true story. Uh, Seems that at the University of Chicago Divinity School, now the Divinity School is not where they make candy. Uh, It's where they train preachers. Well, at the University of Chicago Divinity School, each year they have what is called Baptist Day. For all of you good Baptists out there, there is a day for you. Uh, up at the University of Chicago Divinity School, anytime you'd like to take that trip. But it it happens in the spring each year. And it's the day when all the Baptists in the area are invited to visit the campus and see what's going on there. And, of course, the motive is we got to keep those Baptist dollars rolling in. And so um, on Baptist Day, each one of the guests are told that they need to bring a sack lunch. And uh, they're going to eat their sack lunch out in this grassy picnic area, and then um, after they've eaten lunch on Baptist Day, they all all of the guests move into the education center, where there has been arranged a lecture uh, from one of the foremost thinkers in all of Christendom. One of the one of the finest and greatest minds in all of Christendom has been invited to lecture. Uh, This gathering of Baptists, uh, primarily Baptist pastors. Well, one year at the University of Chicago Divinity School, they invited Dr. Paul Tillich. Now, you might not have heard that name, but I want you to know I have. Um, I have uh, looked at uh, a lot that Tillich has said. But uh, on this day, the guest speaker was Dr. Paul Tillich. And so after lunch... They all moved into the education center to hear a lecture by Dr. Paul Tillich. And on this Baptist day, Dr. Tillich had chosen to speak on the resurrection. And so he spoke for almost two hours that day, um, uh, proving that the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, was false. And so he quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. And and, and, and he concluded that uh, since there was no such thing as the historical resurrection, the, uh, the religious tradition of the church was nothing more than groundless, emotional mumbo-jumbo because it was based on a relationship with a risen Jesus who, in fact... Had never risen from the dead in any literal sense, and so when he was finished, he, um, he. Uh, by the way, this is the uh, this is the story of props. Uh, and when he had finished uh, his great lecture, he um, he turned to his audience and he said, um, "Are there any questions?" And um, after about this thirty second awkward. Silence. This um, rather old, very distinguished African American preacher, with a with a head of short, cropped, woolly white hair. You know, you, you've seen. Anyway, he he stands up in the back and he says, "Dr. Uh, Tillich, I, I got one question." And every eye in the auditorium turned to look at this this man who was questioning Dr. Tillich and uh, so uh, Dr. Tillich said well go right ahead and, and before he had his question he, he reached into his sack lunch bag and he, and he took out an apple and he began to eat it Um, he said Dr. Tillich Um, I just got a, a simple question for you uh, you know I have never read any of those books that you read and Dr. Phillips I can't um, I can't quote the original Greek like you can and uh, uh, by the way I never heard anything about those guys that you quoted, that, that, that Heidegger fellow, that, that uh, Niebuhr guy. I never heard of him. But, um Dr. Tiller, could you tell me one thing? Um, this apple I'm eating, Dr. Tiller, is this apple sweet? Or is it better? Dr. Tillich rolled his eyes and acted like he was a tad offended that such a silly question would be asked him. And then he said, in very exemplary, scholarly fashion, he said, Well, sir. I cannot possibly answer that question because I've never, I've never tasted your apple. And the pastor took his apple and he dropped it into the sack and he looked up and he said, Dr. Tillett, you've never tasted my Jesus either. The whole audience of a thousand people erupted in applause. And Dr. Tillich tried to you know, calm them and they kept clapping and yelling. And finally, Dr. Tillich thanked his audience and walked off the stage. But ladies and gentlemen, what I have just done to you, besides gross you out, <laughs> what I have done to you Is what the scriptures do to you. I have appealed to you. In what is known. And you bright people already know this. I have appealed to you to taste. It is called existential. I have made an existential appeal to you. And I want you to know ladies and gentlemen. The scriptures allow me to do so. Here. Does it again in John 9? Whereas, uh, you remember the blind man, and he was asking all these questions, and, and he couldn't answer all their questions, and he finally said, Well, hold on, fellas, hold on just a second. <laughs> this much I know. I can't answer your questions. I can't figure it all out, but this much I know. I used to be blind, but now I see. Now, what do you want to say about that? Game. There's one thing that I think all of us know. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you know this. You know that down deep inside all of us, in that place where only you and God go, there is within us a deep longing to believe that this ain't all there is. We Christians because of the physical, bodily, verifiable resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that this ain't all there is. That there's one more move. That death is reversible. And all of that, it it, it leaves a sweet taste in the mouth concerning this life and the next one. It's not always very, it's not always the easiest thing in the world to wait on the next one when we see it. But because of what we believe concerning the resurrection of Christ, it gives a sweet taste to the mouth concerning this life and the next one. Now, if you're not a Christian, what are you left with? Well, first of all, you're left with an Easter that's nothing more than a spring festival that is a that is marks the new beginnings or fresh starts. It's kind of a kind of a New Year's in the spring, you know, kind of a New Year's resolution with azaleas and dogwoods. But here's what you're also left with, my friend, if you're not a Christian. You are left with a final irreversible death which makes for a meaningless purposeless life come on now let's be consistent within our own system if you say to me that you were that your point of origin was in meaninglessness that is some kind of evolutionary accident and that death is meaninglessness Then tell me, how is it that you can possibly import some meaning in between those two pieces of meaninglessness? Let me me see if this will help. Let's imagine that I were to give you $50 million and tell you you could spend it any way you want, but I also told you you're going to die in 48 hours. Do you think you'd really enjoy that Rolex watch? Do you think that Ferrari that you're driving would really thrill you? How about that new promotion? No, my friend, what you're left with is a meaningless, purposeless life. Because for you, death is irreversible. Because of your belief system, that leaves you in that position, cornered. Checkmate. Now tell me, how does that taste? My dear friend, there's only one more move for you. There's only one. Come to Christ. He's the one who by his resurrection has removed the sting of death for us. And has promised to live with his people forever. That's what I'm calling. A different taste. We taste it now. We'll see it later. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that All of the promises of your word unite to assure us that the grave is not the final word. That what we celebrate today is our piece of historically verifiable evidence. That we can go on believing that there is a life after this one. And that the loved ones who have preceded us await us that all of those horribly ugly emotions are going to be replaced because of what Jesus Christ has done. There is one more move. I pray, Father, for the people that you have brought here today who have not yet embraced this beautiful Savior of ours, the one who died in our place and conquered the grave for his people might they see the great meaninglessness of their position and be wooed and drawn irresistibly to this new taste of something that we can taste now and will certainly see later. Do a great work on this Easter, Father. Thrill your people. Comfort your people. And at the same time, draw men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We make our prayer, of course, in the name of King Jesus. Amen.